the case dot report. Hello everyone and happy 2022. Welcome back from Team TCR. This month we have a gripping case discussion with our trainees Leah and Tims and our adult in the room is Dr. John Cronin, consultant in emergency medicine in St. Vincent University Hospital Dublin. We have an interview with Catherine Fowler, a trustee of the Aortic Dissection Charitable Trust, which is simply not to be missed, and a fantastic echo chamber from our very own Callum Swift. There's lots to be getting on with this month, so as usual, fasten your seatbelts or tie up those runners or pop on the kettle and let's get cracking. First up is our case with Leah and Tims. So joining us for the case today are TCOR veterans, Leah and Tims. Hey guys. Hi Orla. Hey Orla, how are you getting on? I'm well, well, thank you for asking. Uh, thanks for joining us again. We've got a pretty gripping case today. So uh, Leah and Tims, why don't you take it away for us? So Tims, you're the registrar in ED and we'll run you through a case. So we have a nurse in Tria. She calls you over to review a patient that has been brought in by his daughter. He's a 51-year-old male and he's complaining of sudden onset chest discomfort, which started 30 minutes ago. When you go in, he looks pretty uncomfortable, but he says his pain is starting to settle. What's your first thought? Thanks, Leah. So what I'll do first is just one year old, chest discomfort, a lot of things rolling through my mind. I would start by moving him to the major cubicle and make sure he has a proper monitoring and gets a set of vitals and take it from there. Perfect. So the major nurse is setting up, getting his set of vitals. Uh, what do you want to do in the meantime? So yeah, from there, once he's kind of set in the cubicle, just want to start, you know, take a history from the patient and kind of find out how he describes his pain. So what is he telling me about the pain? So basically the story goes that he was getting up to go into the kitchen for his dinner. And as he got up and started walking, he got this severe chest pain and he felt really lightheaded and collapsed on the ground and his wife heard him fall and they called the daughter for help. He's still in a huge amount of discomfort now and he's quite restless with the pain, but it is settling a little bit. You do know that he was started on anticoagulation last week for his, by his GP for new onset atrial fibrillation and he's known hypertension and he's on two antihypertensives, a statin, and also he's an active smoker. Wow. Okay. So that gets alarm bells kind of ringing. So like, what's his vitals? Okay. So his heart rate is 110 beats per minute. It's AFib. His blood pressure is 210 over 100. His rests are 22. His sats are 98% on room air and he's normothermic. But as you're starting to get this last set of vitals, he starts to look extremely uncomfortable and he says his chest pain is definitely coming back and it's radiating into his back now. He's gripping his chest and he's really restless with the pain. Well, yeah, like uh, that's uh, so I would definitely want to get him into resource, get a full set of vitals again on him and get bilateral blood pressures as when he gets into resource as well and be thinking about analgesia. So his vitals are roughly the same. His blood pressure now in the right arm is 220 over 105 and on the left arm it's 200 over 87. What about his SATs, his respiratory rate? So his rests are 22 still and his SATs are 98% on room air and he looks pretty diaphoretic, but he's normothermic. Okay, so he's sweating buckets. So the patient starts sweating with chest pain, I start sweating. So once he's in resource, get the nurse to drop some analgesia. There's no time to play with like paracetamol here. So I'll be looking for morphine because I think pain can also be contributing to the blood pressure as well. I have 
I kind of have a set of differentials in my mind at the moment, you know, but I'm going to go off starting by examining the patient, doing a head-to-toe examination using an ABCDE approach and obviously get some help as well. Somebody should be inserting an IV, IV line and taking bloods, baseline bloods, including a trope of VBG and an ECG. Perfect. You have a trusty SHO and a nurse on board and everything's running simultaneously in resus. Okay, perfect. So basically... On examination, I know he's talking to me, so I think his airway is patent, but I know he's stressed at the same time. I'm happy his airway is patent, but so we'll kind of move on to the B assessment. So on auscultation of the chest, there's mild bibasal coarse crackles. His rests are still 22 and his stats are still 98% room air. Okay. All right. I know he's hypertensive and tachycardic on his vitals. So you definitely hear some sort of cardiac murmur and it's not sounding quite right, but you've never really been great with your murmurs. There is no radio-radial delay, abdomen soft, non-tender. The patient was initially pretty pale, diaphoretic, clammy, but he seems to be settling a little bit with the painkillers. No focal neurology on exam. Okay. All right. Okay. So, and on his ease assessment, any significant findings there? No, afebrile and blood glucose is 10 and the SHO is kind of finding it difficult to get a line in. All right. Yeah. So this is why I get out my trusty ultrasound because I don't, I don't want to be, uh, I want to get access as quickly as possible. So, um, okay. So we have a few differentials. I have a few differentials in my mind. So topping the list would be aortic dissection given his presentation. Also a hypertensive emergency and an MI. So I'll need to have a look at this ECG and start considering like BP control because we've been managing his pain as well. Mm, perfect. Yeah. His ECG has some non-specific T-way flattening and a little bit of mild inversion in the infralateral leads. Okay. All right. All right. Perfect. So at this stage now, I'm going to start off with Lepetolol because that's our first line treatment for managing patients in either hypertensive emergency or even patients who, has, who were suspecting hazard dissection as well. So I'm going to start off with Lepetolol. So kind of if you assume it's in kind of a 70 to an 80 kilogram male, so I'll be drawing up about at least 20 milligrams. In the meantime, um, I'll be popping my ultrasound probe on him to kind of assess cardiac assessment on him and looking at his aorta. But I probably will save that off for the echo chamber. All right. I would like to get a portable chest X-ray in resource. However, given the fact that I have aortic dissection in my differential, I would probably go ahead and be chatting with the radiologist <laughs> to get a CT. <laughs> Radiology have agreed to absolutely do your CTA ortogram. In the meantime, his heart rate and blood pressure are lowering nice and slowly and he gets a scan. Radiology calls you back to tell you that they have a type A aortic dissection. How would you like to proceed? So basically, so for, so type for type A dissections, I'll be contacting cardiothoracics, and luckily we have that uh, where I work, which is great, and they're really actively involved in managing patients down in ED as well. So mm. while I'm waiting for them to arrive, again, keeping close eye on his blood pressure and his pain management by making sure he has adequate analgesia and managing the blood pressure with a lapidolol as well. Perfect. Yeah. And you're right. Cardiothoracics do, do come down and they immediately prep the patient for theatre. He's transported on eventful surgical intervention, went to ICU and re- was rehabilitated in hospital for two weeks and discharged home with patient follow-up. Well done, guys. Another life saved. Excellent case. Yeah. Great, guys. Tims, can I ask if, you know, just by any chance in your career, you happen to not to work in a major trauma centre um, and this patient had to be transferred, who would you send with him? So... That's, that's, a, that's a very interesting question. So whoever's going with this guy would have to have some level of critical care training. Okay. So whether that's a critical care paramedic, whether that's a actually like a critical care doc or an ICU doc or an emergency medicine doctor who has critical tra- care training and competencies to travel with this guy, because if they, if they get on well, they get on well pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, you'd be looking for transport, certainly with medical escort, likely, likely ICU or anesthetics, really, I think. And then, yeah, possible air transport if necessary. Yeah. Great. 
Okay, so fantastic case, guys, and a condition that would give us the heebie-jeebies in the emergency department, but not just when we recognize it, but also, I guess, when we don't recognize it. So, uh, Leah, why don't you talk us through just an overview of aortic dissection? Yeah, so acute aortic dissection generally occurs when a false lumen is formed just on the intima of the aorta with blood entering. And you can get this spectrum of aortic syndrome, which kind of includes an intramural hematoma, aneurysm formation, penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer, and aortic dissection itself as well. I think most importantly to remember is that it has an increasing mortality of approximately 1% to 2% per hour after onset. And if left untreated, mortality can be easily up to 50% in the first 48 hours alone. It's really tricky to diagnose. We'll go into that a little bit later on as well. But thankfully, through you know a number of unfortunately high profile cases that have happened, we've got a lot more awareness kind of coming into the departments and a lot more foundations that have been set up to kind of raise awareness around it as well. Tims, do you want to tell us a little bit about kind of who gets this and and, and who's at risk of, of getting this presentation? Yeah. So aortic dissection is, is, is common in males, so kind of around 67%. And then it's kind of between the ages of 40 to 70, but that that's not limited to just that age group. You know, anybody can have an aortic dissection. So for younger patients, you would find out that they tend more, li- more likely to have, you know, Marfan syndrome. So that's something to really keep about. And if you see somebody under the age of 40 presenting with kind of typical symptoms, um, you look for myofibrillary features. If they have bicuspid um, aortic valves as well, elderly patients tend to have, you know, hypertension, atherosclerosis, or prior aortic aneurysms or, or, or prior surgery, aortic surgery, uh, in terms of kind of that presentation. Now, the biggest issue I find with the demographics is that for females and older patients, they, from studies from like, which is the International Registry of the Aortic Dissection, they've shown that females and older patients tend to have delayed presentation and diagnosis because of the nature of the symptoms are not typical. So that's something you just need to be aware of as well. Okay, great. And then Leah, do you want to talk us through some of the symptoms? that you might um, expect from patients presenting. Mm, yeah. And I think that's what is most difficult. Again, as Tim was saying about aortic dissection, is this variety in presentations and how it's so oftenly missed. Stereotypically, we do consider it, I suppose, through medical school, that the pain is considered maximal at onset, tearing, sharp chest pain, usually that radiates down the back or migrates. Retrosternal chest pain alone is normally in an anterior aortic dissection, while when you see interscapular pain, that can usually be dissection of the descending aorta. A proportion of patients are actually completely painless. So about 6% of patients in aortic dissection are completely painless. Terrifying. So if you've got Mm -hmm. 1 in 20 patients that are presenting either with a neurological condition or a syncope or any of the other kind of myriad non-specific things that can, um, be, you know, be because of aortic dissection. If one in 20 of them are painless, they're the ones that obviously were, were at high risk of missing. Tims, why don't you talk us through the kind of things that you're looking for when patients do present in pain? Um, is there something about that pain that can lead us down the path to think more aortic dissection than the other causes of chest pain that we're always thinking of? Yeah, yes, definitely. So there's something um, David Carr, who is one of the Canadian emergency physicians, has been talking about five pain pearls. And I think it's something that we can probably adapt into our own practice. And I think people should be aware about. So he talks about the five pain pearls and that the first one is that is that there are three kind of core questions when you're asking patients who come in with this kind of typical symptoms or who you're suspecting aortic dissection. That's one, the quality of the pain. So it's usually sharp and tearing and asking them about that. The other thing is the pain intensity at onset. And then asking that question about abruptness of onset as well. And then 
the radiation of the pain. So that's how pain won. So in a particular study, they found that if you ask these three questions, you're able to identify, you know, able to increase suspicion of aortic dissection up to 91%. So the next pain pearl is that he's described that you think about aortic dissection as subarachnoid hemorrhage of the torso. So these patients are... Have, when they have the pain, the pain comes up mass intensity, the sudden on, uh, abrupt onset. So you have to think about think about that. The, the third one is that so like somebody who has renal colic, they are in huge discomfort. And they're restless with the pain, and just like our patient here, he was pretty restless with the pain as well. So they can't really find a good position to stay to stay in. So you think about that. The other thing is migratory pain. It's not common, so you find it kind of less than 20%. However, the likelihood ratio is 7.6, meaning that if you do see a patient that has migratory pain, similar to our patients here, that really puts you in the line that this patient likely has an aortic dissection. And the last one is that, that aortic dissection pain can be intermittent and that, you know, it can you can have the first one and then a second one as well, or third. And all that means is just that the dissection flap is just increasing as it's going through from wherever it started. Yeah. Mm. And I think also the way that it can present with already having complications. So like even, you know, cases where a patient reports chest pain and then suddenly gets a new onset neurology, like lower limb pain, weakness, ischemia, um, or even they can already present with hypotension as well, which is why checking both arms is important because you might already get hypotension or um, one vessel occluded in one arm as opposed to the other. You could also get an acute MI as well or aortic rupture or regurgitation as well. Yeah, so that uh, that murmur that you you heard in the case, we can imagine was probably a diastolic murmur and was a new aortic regurgitation. And the reason we get that is because we have dilatation of the aortic root with the dissection. And so you get regurgitation of blood flow past the aortic valve. Mm-hmm. Okay, so symptoms and signs are there. Um, obviously, in terms of physiology, patients are, are frequently tachycardic, hypertensive. Some of that due to the underlying pathophysiology, some of it due to pain. And the variety of symptoms that they can present with from neurology to chest pain to ischemia to syncope um, just means that you need to throw your diagnostic net very, very wide. Um, And aortic dissection should probably be there for a lot of the patients that you see. Great. So in terms of investigations then, Leah, what would we be doing immediately? So definitely a few basic ones to start with, like we did in the case, was an ECG. It's most patients with chest pain generally always get an ECG, I would hope. Um, But obviously you can also kind of get a pericarditis picture as well. It's difficult because in one IRAD study that we'll link in the show notes, 5% presented with actually an MI on ECG and 15% with signs of ischemia and about 40% with non-specific ST and T wave changes. But actually a huge amount of these patients will have a completely normal ECG as well. You want to send off a troponin, again, I suppose, if there's a concern about myocardial ischemia, but it's non-discriminatory for aortic dissection, and it kind of leads you into a bit of a rabbit hole for treating, you know, ACS as opposed to aortic dissection. Um, So it's an important thing to kind of think about and keep your differentials wide, even when you're sending these. D-dimers as well. So, God, our beloved, beloved D-dimer. So (laughs) numerous papers have essentially been published over the last, you know, couple of 10 years or so about whether or not we should use D-dimers in diagnosing aortic dissection. Look, essentially the evidence is really unclear. Methodology of some papers tends to give you a good bit of bias as well. And we don't have a randomized control trial yet over whether or not we should use it. So bottom line, if you have a low pretest probability, then you're likely to miss an aortic dissection. But look, sometimes there may be a role for running a D-dimer anyway. And then I guess... And I presume mm-hmm. it's in the usual kind of uh, a normal D-dimer 
in terms of ruling it out rather than exactly rather than high one ruling it in. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I suppose then an important point on, on the ECGs and troponins, and particularly if you're in a center that's used to thrombolizing and then transferring patients who present with ACS, if you're seeing, you know, if 20% of patients um, present with either MI or signs of ischemia and, you know, a story of chest pain, the last thing that these patients need is to be loaded with dual antiplatelets and then thrombolized. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you even notice that in the case because the guy in our case as well had just been started on anticoagulation by his GP the week before for AFib. So, you know. Okay. So continuing, we've done our um, ECG troponin and other generally useless blood tests. And so I guess the next one then is your chest x-ray. This is a difficult one because a lot of patients will go in and get chest x-rays, but obviously if you have access to CT, you know, straight to CT as well. Um, in assessment of patients with suspected aortic dissection, you can pick up a few things on chest x-ray, which might be helpful to your assessment. So a widened mediastinum is the most, you know, I suppose, well-known one, and that's greater than eight centimeters. You might get a pleural effusion, maybe some deviation of the esophagus or the trachea to the right side, and then depression of the left main stem and bronchus as well. But it's important to kind of recognize that, you know, 20% of aortic dissection patients can present with absolutely no chest x-ray findings. And um, so again, that's the t- tricky thing about aortic dissection is just keeping it in mind, even if you're coming back with some normal investigations as well. And those ones that are generally not having any chest x-ray features are dissections that occur just below the diaphragm or in a non-dilated aorta as well. And then obviously we, you know, couldn't possibly examine any patient without an ultrasound probe in our hand. So <laughs> um, I know we're going to be talking a, a little bit about that later on in the echo chamber, but would we be using it for anything else kind of at the bedside looking at at these patients? Yeah, so definitely. So the focus probe in your hand does a lot of things. So it helps you also assess for other differentials. So, and I think that's where his utility really comes in. I I know, yes, you can use it. You can be, you might be able to diagnose dissection, but it's, it's the broad differential that it can help you also kind of find when you're using to examine the patients. Um, so like in the emergency department, we'll be doing kind of a transthoracic echo and, you know, the utility of this will also be good in low resource settings as well. Now, I know T uh, transosophageal echo, the use has declined over the last couple of years because that was kind of the mainstay of diagnosing aortic dissection. But with the advent of CT uh, angiography and CT autograms, I, I think that's kind of taken the back back seat. But again, in low resource settings or very unstable patients, I, you know, a, a TEE will probably be the way to go if you're trying to assess these patients for an aortic dissection. Then kind of moving on, CT and geography is considered gold standard for diagnosis of aortic dissection. And the features on CT you're looking for um, are like an intimal dissection flap, double lumen, aortic dilatation and hematoma, and regions of malperfusion as well, or contract list in the case of aortic rupture, uh, which hopefully <laughs> somebody gets to see. The, <laughs> the, the sensitivities of CT and specificities are quite high, so it's above all above the 90s and TE as well as all above the 90s, so which is quite good. So each of the modalities has its advantages, but the main thing is that the gold standard we'll be using in our emergency department should be a uh, CT for these patients. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so then, Leah, you've got your CT and the CT report has come back of um, a dissection of the ascending aorta. Um, how When you're chatting to our cardiothoracic colleagues, then how do you classify dissections? 
So when you're looking at the classification, there's kind of two different systems that we use, a Stanford and a DeBakey system. Generally, the most common one at the moment is the Stanford classification. So Stanford type A dissection usually involves the ascending aorta, but can extend further. And they account for about 60% of aorta dissections. Um, now, these patients generally go straight to cardiothoracics because they will require surgery in most cases, um, especially if there's an extension into the pericardial sac, you can get a cardiac tamponade as well. Type B Stanford classification is when the descending aorta is affected, so beyond the level of the left subclavian artery. Usually these patients are me- medically managed, so they get tight blood pressure control and they'd be conservative management. Debakey classification, uh, type 1 involves the ascending and descending aorta. Type 2 is just the ascending aorta only. And then uh, type 3, obviously, is then isolated to the descending aorta only. But we do tend to just use the Stanford one. Okay. Great stuff. And then let's get into the juicy stuff then, Tim's management. How are we treating these patients? The management for these patients, I think, just highlights is that when, when you're thinking about the patient that you're doing resource, the first thing is pain control. So no time for kind of, like I said, in, during the case, there's no time for the small stuff. You're not doing paracetamol of these patients because, <laughs> because these patients are in serious pain. So like I'll be going morphine or fentanyl. Uh, in terms of the pain management. And I think the idea to manage the pain and that decreases the sympathetic drive as well, which will kind of be driving your heart rate and your blood pressure. So you have to think about pain first. Mm, and specifically, actually, fentanyl, interestingly, reduces your endogenous catecholamines, which obviously drives your heart rate and, mm-hmm. and your inotropy as well. So yeah, absolutely. A nice a nice little bit of fentanyl is, is going to be good for a number of reasons in these patients. Exactly. Yeah. And and then, then moving on from there, then you're now going to controlling the heart rate. So the heart rate, you'd be thinking, looking at things like Lepetolol, which we use for our patients here. And in other jurisdictions, some people use Esmolol, particularly in the States. And then the next step is to try and think about the blood pressure, if it's not still being controlled. Obviously, your labetalol also control your blood pressure because it has both alpha and beta activity. Um, but if you're looking for further blood pressure control, then you're looking at things like, you know, micatopine, GTN, or nitroperoxide, which kind of all have their issues. But in most, in most institutions here in Ireland, I think we'll be using more GTN, nicatapine as opposed to nitroperoxide. And if the, you know, if you're unlucky enough that you've, you've knocked out your RAD and you've got an inferior MI on top of your, on top of your aortic dissection. <laughs> So if you copy, yeah, so if you do that, then you know most of these patients will be susceptible to, to hypertension, and that's yeah. again you're looking at the context in which you're managing this patient. So if they're hypertensive and they come to inferior MI, you're not looking at blood pressure control at that stage. You're looking at making sure they have adequate organ perfusion. So you're making sure that you know the blood pressure, the systolic, the systolic is above ninety. You're giving them fluids to kind of augment that, you know, and then that's why you're thinking about things like either giving them vasopressors as well to try and augment that that blood pressure particularly if they're if they're very hypertensive but obviously trying to make sure that you're not kind of pushing them towards a systolic blood pressure or anything above kind of 160 which mm-hmm. kind of drive or worsen their dissection and it's also i suppose interesting for me when i was looking at this was that uh, you always use the highest blood pressure in both arms so when you have that blood pressure discrepancy it's always to use the highest one to guide your management yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, because there can be significant differences. Um, and definitely mm. you could be one reading could be nicely below the the you know the cutoff of what where you want to keep these these patients with solid blood pressures. Great. So I suppose, guys, what are your take home points that we really want people to learn from this discussion? Yeah. So just from I think the five five pin pearls by David Carr is is quite good because it just kind of helps you. Put you in the frame of mind like these are the questions you want to ask these patients does it delineate you know 
kind of what you're dealing with. And if most of the questions are positive, then you're thinking about IoT dissection early. And I think I think the biggest challenge is to think about it. And then once you think about it, you know, how can you confirm it? And once you come, once you have that in mind, then you know you're pushing for a CTA autogram, CTA autogram for these patients. Yeah. And I think, I suppose, oh, the D-dimer. It's not as helpful as we thought. You know, um, I think we've got a healthy amount of skepticism about it. But the most important thing for aortic dissection is having a good history, a good exam. And then I suppose in terms of the management, it's thinking of a systematic approach to everything we do. So nothing gets left behind. So start off with managing their pain first and foremost, and then manage the heart rate and then move to the blood pressure as well. I think to add into that, manage, um, manage the symptoms and disorder, pain, heart rate, blood pressure, is really good. Um, I'd probably add in another one, which is we didn't talk about in the case is anticoagulation. So reverse the patient's anticoagulation if you can, mm-hmm. if they're on warfarin or any other anticoagulation that is reversible and have a chat to um, a hematologist on call if you've got a patient that's coming in anticoagulated with a, with a dissection, I think would be pretty reasonable. Mm. Great. Okay. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for that gripping case. We'll have you back on the show very, very soon. And thanks again. Have a good day. You too. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Orla. Correcting our homework from this case is Dr. John Cronin, consultant in emergency medicine in St. Vincent's Hospital, Dublin. Dr. Cronin trained as an emergency physician in the Royal Melbourne Hospital, Australia, and on the Irish Emergency Medicine Training Programme. He has a strong interest in research and currently chairs the Audit and Research Committee. He also runs the Registrar Teaching Programme for the department. So let's see what grade he gave us. Hi, Orla, Leah and Tims and Mo. Really love your podcast and thanks very much for asking me to be the adult in the room for this case. And well done on the case and especially to Tims for his management. I think if you're a patient in an emergency department and you see Tims coming towards you, it sounds like you're going to be in safe hands. So just to go over some of the aspects of this case that you've presented, just to reiterate some of the points and maybe give my take on some of it. So there are a number of aspects of this case that really put aortic dissection right at the top of your differential. So firstly, the fact that the pain was of sudden onset, like that subarachnoid of the chest that you very well described. I find it's worth teasing that out sometimes in the history. Often, I think when you ask patients who have, let's say, a severe pain, did it come on suddenly that I feel that they'll often say yes. With aortic dissection, it's classically described like, like a light switch, you know, so they will really almost be able to tell you where they were, what they were doing, who they were talking to at the time that the um, pain, you know, really came on uh, suddenly. And obviously, as an emergency physician, we kind of do our end of the bedogram when we kind of look at the patient and just realize they look unwell. And, and that came out in this case. You know, you just knew something was not quite right. And it's important to trust those uh, those instincts. Another aspect that came out with this was that the pain settled. And that's important to note because this can be a sudden, very severe pain that then eases and literally eases and goes away only for it to recur again. Uh, and that's something that comes out when people look back on cases where there was either delayed or, or misdiagnosis is that people were fooled by the fact that the pain settled. So it's important not to be falsely reassured by that. Also, this patient had a syncope. And again, this is something that's 
sometimes classically described in aortic dissection where you have that idea of the chest pain plus one, chest pain plus some other unusual symptom, in this case syncope. They can have other neurological type symptoms, other symptoms related to ischemia, perhaps gut ischemia. And these are obviously related to malperfusion. The syncope can be as a result of the vessels coming off the arch of the aorta being compromised. It can also be as a result of the pericardial tamponade developing quickly. So in a type A dissection where the blood goes, propagates backwards and and surrounds the heart. So uh, you can imagine that pericardial tamponade in the aortic dissection collecting very quickly and, and causing this patient to have a syncope and to lose consciousness and potentially to become very hemodynamically unstable. So I have thought those very important points in terms of the history. In terms of the management then, uh, I fully agree getting this patient into resus quickly and getting a line in so that you can give your analgesia and you're going to go with strong analgesia as you described. And obviously you'll also need the line for the for the CT. And on that, one thing I, I would say that when this history comes out as it did very clearly, even when you know, you're called from triage by the nurse, it's worth almost thinking about that CT straight away and lining that up as quickly as you can. Obviously, you need to all do all those other things as well. So that's why it's good to have help. But when you think about it in terms of the CT, sometimes it's easier said than done. You, you need to get your order in on your electronic ordering system. Hopefully, you may need to, if it's out of hours, call a radiographer in. You'll obviously need to get in touch with your radiologist to discuss the scan. So it's important to do those things as quickly as possible because you really don't want to delay this patient getting to CT you need to get them there as quickly as possible. Just a little more on that scan, which is obviously the key to making the diagnosis, because I know we discussed a little bit about access to CT. And look, that can vary from hospital to hospital around the country. But I know we and our colleagues in radiology and and cardiothoracics, you would want a patient like this who has an acute aortic dissection to really get that scan as quickly as possible without any delay. So it's worth, you know, trainees listening to this to have a think. If this patient did present and you were looking after them in the department you're currently working in, maybe out of hours, you know, in an even time, would there be any challenges in terms of getting them to CT quickly? Could there potentially, could you foresee delays uh, or, or, or would you be confident that you'd get them there there straight away? And if so, great, you know, but if you think there might be, it's worth maybe bringing that up, discussing that with your consultants, you know, with your colleagues in, in radiology and, and cardiothoracics, if you have them available so that you can maybe iron those out or clarify those things so that you're not trying to deal with those things late at night when you're on your own, perhaps. In terms of other investigations then, ultrasound, I know you're going to talk about it in more depth in the echo chamber. It can certainly be useful in this condition. You talked about it in terms of getting IV access, um, which is really important in this case. Also, you know, in this patient who comes in while you're taking that uh, concise history in resus, you know, you can have your echo probe there and say, look, I'm just going to have a look at the heart while you're talking to the patient and asking questions. And you may see a pericardial tamponade straight away. You may see evidence of an aortic dissection from the aortic root, like in a type A. There's also a view that you can do looking up over the jugular notch where sometimes you can get a view of the aortic root. So it's not, I don't think, going to replace CT. It's still all important to get that CT. But if you see that straight away while you're talking to the patient, you know straight away, even before they go to CT, what you're dealing with. So you can line up your, get your cardiothoracic team informed that this is what it's going to be and then confirm it on your CT, which you you get as, as rapidly as you can. 
In terms of portable chest x-ray here, I think in this case, really, you're just going to go straight to your CT, aren't you? I know portable chest x-ray is something that we'll often do for the undifferentiated, you know, short of breath, unwell patient in, in resource. But in this case, I think we're going to go straight to our CT. And as you know, chest x-rays in aortic dissection can look normal. There are some findings that you will see on chest x-ray and they're often useful for MCQ questions, but chest x-ray can in a significant percentage be normal in aortic dissection patients. In terms of blood tests, troponin, yep, you know, totally reasonable to send that and required. I think in this patient, you know, who could be having an MI. And then D-dimer, you also mentioned, and there obviously are a lot of studies looking at that. You know, perhaps one might send a D-dimer if you're doing your workup for a, a PE, you know, if someone has got a, a low well score, it may be useful. But I just don't really see it as being useful in aortic dissection. Again, there has been some studies looking at it, combining it with the aortic dissection detection risk risk score, if they score zero on that and then have a negative D-dimer, there is some studies suggesting that you can use that to a rule, but I, I don't think I would recommend that. Firstly, from a usefulness point of view, any patient that really that you're querying aortic dissection are going to score something on that risk score if you look at it. Uh, so I, I don't see it being useful and I, I wouldn't recommend using D-dimer to, to rule it out. I don't think we're there. And then obviously ECG is important. In a percentage of these patients, they can have entirely normal ECG, but they can also have signs of ischemia. And that can also lead to delays, unfortunately, in diagnosing aortic dissections because people go down the feeling, well, this is coronary ischemia or this is an MI route. And, you know, people kind of fixate on that diagnosis. But if the history is there, where aortic dissection is at the top of your differential or just on your differential, you still need to get that CT because they may just have ECG findings as a result of that. With regard to managing the heart rate and the blood pressure, I I think you mentioned heart rate first. I'd look at managing the heart rate secondary to the blood pressure. So I'd aim at the blood pressure first, aiming for a systolic blood pressure of 110 to 120 millimeters of mercury. And I think labellol is a good idea as your first line agent. So you can give 20 milligrams IV stat followed by 20 to 80 milligram boluses kind of every 10 minutes. Obviously important to look at your uh, own protocol that you'll have in resource there in your hospital. And labellol will then also help in terms of managing the the heart rate as well but reducing the blood pressure will reduce that wall stress that can further propagate the dissection down the aorta other options are sodium nitroprusside you give nitrates as well nitrates may you will know, control blood pressure they may end up pushing the heart rate up a little bit but you have a few options there but i say the targets which i think you also correctly mentioned of a systolic blood pressure 110 to 120 and a heart rate of around 60 beats per minute if you've time, then I think putting an arterial line in would be wise. And obviously, your main goal initially is get the patient to CT. Then when you've made that diagnosis, the next is your disposition. So you, in this case, you need to have cardiothoracic involved as quickly as possible and you get them to theatre appropriately and quickly. But you may and probably will have time to put an art line in there, which really will help with your blood pressure management. And in terms of that, the disposition was quite clear here. And again, with type A, it's going directly to cardiothoracics. Not every hospital obviously has cardiothoracics. So it's important where you work that you know, you know when you're out of hours seeing a patient like this, that you know who the cardiothoracic person is that you contact. So that process is seamless. Again, with type B, it's 
kind of more classically decided as well, type A, surgical, cardiothoracic, type B, medical, cardiology, management. Important that type B patients obviously can become very unwell as well. They may end up requiring acute surgical intervention and they can have a significant mortality rate also. So again, it's important where you work that you know where you're going to be referring a type B to maybe in cardiology under CCU, there are other specialties such as vascular or cardiothoracics, which may also be involved in admitting these patients. That does vary from hospital to hospital and, and different places that you work who will admit these patients. So it's just also important to be clear where you're working as to who's going to be admit these patients. But you know, type Bs can become very unstable as well and require surgery and have a significant mortality, uh, as I said. So, you know, I think you managed that case really well. I know you just a couple of things I wanted to pick up on your in your discussion. In terms of the demographics, I'm, I think there's a comparison with ruptured AAA. I, th- I think the data will show like in the age group that we over 65, kind of 65 to 75, that we often see patients with ruptured AAA. Aortic dissection is roughly about as common. So it, it is important to, you know, I think that comparison is a good one because I think traditionally, Probably ruptured AAA's got more attention in teaching than aortic dissection did, but it's, it's probably about as common as each other in that age group. But you know, up to forty percent of cases of aortic dissection can occur in patients aged less than fifty years of age. And the other important risk factor that not everyone might be aware of is pregnancy. There was a very good paper in JAMA in twenty sixteen. So uh, pregnant women, particularly in the third trimester, are at increased risk of uh, dissection. And in that paper, they looked at hundreds of thousands of pregnancies, and when they compared them to the control group of one year later after the pregnancy, they found that pregnant patients were at significant increased risk compared to that control group. So maybe some people aren't very aware of. Thanks again, guys, for covering this case. I think aortic dissection is is real quintessential emergency condition. You know, the stakes are very high with it. There's significant mortality. There's important aspects of history taken, examination findings, and obviously investigations and interventions that we can make that can really save lives here. So this should be a condition that emergency physicians are really expert in, in terms of making the diagnosis and those initial steps in resuscitation and management. Uh, so thanks again for asking me in to be involved. Next, we have TCR's Echo Master EM trainee Callum to tell us all things about the aorta and POCUS. Take it away, Callum. So welcome back to the Echo Chamber. Hey, Tims. Hi, Colin. How are you doing? Great, thanks. Uh, that was an amazing case and so plenty to talk about on the ultrasound front. So we're going to go through the kind of ultrasound assessment of aortic dissections with you and then some pearls. And then we're going to go through a really interesting study that was published recently looking at the utility of point-of-care ultrasounds in the diagnosis and treatments of aortic dissection. So to start with, how would you kind of approach this patients when you're trying to uh, have a look at their aorta and see if there's a dissection present? Yeah, thanks for that column. So 
um, like in our case, this 51-year-old gentleman had presented to us with his chest pain and the presentation that led us to kind of suspect that he had, was having an aortic dissection. So I would like to take a systematic approach. And prior to this, it would have just been, first of all, looking, taking a parasternal long axis view and looking at the aortic root. What I'm looking for is either like, a, like an indirect sign for a dilated aortic root, and you would have something, anything greater than four, which is kind of an arbitrary number that's been tossed around, would so it would lead to an increased suspicion of an aortic dissection. And uh, another indirect sign would be if you see um, aortic regurge as well. But more direct sign is if you see an internal flap within the aortic root or ascending aorta, then you know you, that would lead to increased suspicion of aortic dissection. Now. Moving on, this is a view. The next view is a, like a suprasternal not view, which is not something. Something I, I I think I didn't do a lot, and what I want to add to my practice now. And basically, you're using your phase array probe or your echo probe, and with your probe marker facing towards the left of the patient in a more oblique fashion towards, like you would say, the left carotid, for example, and you're facing downwards to try and view the aortic uh, aortic arch looking at the and what one what you'll be seeing literally is the on the left hand side of your screen would be the brachiocephalic coming off and then the next vessel coming off would be your left common carotid and then your left subclavian vein and this view also helps kind of assess what you're looking for as if you see a dissection flap again your you know an internal flap that's what you're looking for then you go into your parasternal short axis you're looking for Indirect signs like uh, pericardial effusion, if you're worried and also assessing for the patient has tamponade. The other thing as well, you can look at for direct signs, you'll be looking at the descending aorta and you'll be looking for an internal flap there as well or dilatation. Following that, the last part is to look for the abdominal views. And this part, you're using your covilinear probe. You can use the phase array probe if, if you want, but the covilinear probe will probably be better. And then you'll be assessing the abdominal aorta in both transverse and longitudinal views, kind of going from the zephysternum all the way down to the bifurcation at the level of the umbilicus. So again, here, what you're looking for is more of a direct sign, like a dissection flap. Sometimes you can put on some color flow and that will kind of help determine kind of looking at the force and the true lumen as well. So that's, that's what I would normally do when I'm assessing patients when I'm suspecting dissection. Super. So a nice systematic approach. It is actually possible to image the whole aorta, the ascending, the arch, and the descending, as you described. Technically difficult to get some of the images. So there's a great video by 5 Minute Sono, which we'll put in the show notes, where they show the, where your probe is and the angle you're pointing at, because it's hard to describe it. But it's, as I say, possible to get the view. And then you're talking about direct and indirect signs. So just to summarize that, the indirect signs are kind of clues that they might be a dissection without actually seeing a dissection. So things like tamponade, things like uh, pericardial fusion, and then direct signs is actually seeing that intermal flap. And, you know, what is an intermal flap? Well, the study we'll talk about in a bit defines it as an undulating motion concordant with pulsatile blood flow, independent of excursions of the aortic wall or visualization in more than a single view. Sorry, I'll repeat that. What is a, a dissection flap? Well, the paper we're discussing a bit calls it a flap separating two aortic lumens observed in the aorta. Um, and it should be an undulating motion concordant with pulsatile blood flow. Um, it should be visualized in more than a single view. And it should be a clear distinction from the reverberations originating from adjacent structures. So you've got to make sure you're not looking at an artifact. You've got to try and see it in two views. And it should be a, a second flap of the aorta that's moving with the pulsatile blood flow. Great. So, so Tim, are there any pitfalls with uh, using point of care ultrasound for aortic dissection? 
Yeah, Colin, there, there are a number of pitfalls. And I, and these are things I think we need to watch out for. I know we love, I love focus. I don't know about you, but it does have, have its limitations. So like the first thing, if you could just go into that systematic approach, when looking at the aortic root, some patients might already have a kind of aortic root dilatation, which is kind of, which has been predetermined or which has been there previously, like an aortic root aneurysm. And this is, this might be known. And when you see it the first time, if you don't know the background history of the patient, this can lead to that kind of false reassurance. Oh, I think this patient might be having aortic dissection in the setting. The other thing as well, like they could also have, with the dilated aortic root, they must also have, you know, previous known aortic root, aortic regurgitation as well. So when you're looking at this, applying it in the right clinical settings is really, really important. The other pitfalls as well for the suprasternal view is really the probe position. And I think I felt, I felt great to this as well. When you're trying to visualize it, if your probe is not oblique, it's very difficult to actually get the arch view. And if you don't get that view, sometimes, you know, you can't really, again, you can't really rule in if the patient has a dissection at that view. So it's really important about your proposition from there. Then the other things as well is when you see a patient, particularly like, particularly with patients who would have had maybe like a AAA as well, like, you know, for novice, uh, for novice scanners, not to confuse the luminoid and the surrounding thrombus to be that this patient has had a dissection, whereas this patient is having a AAA. So those are some of the common pitfalls, you know, that I've seen or I know. Absolutely. And yeah, always to emphasize with point of care ultrasound, it's a rule in modality, not a rule out, and it's not the gold standard test. So shouldn't delay the gold standard test, which is CT angiogram. So if the porter is there wanting to take the patient to CT, do not delay that to complete your ultrasound assessment. It's used as a means of expediting care, shouldn't delay other treatments. So with that being said, we'll move on to discuss this paper, which is a great paper published in the Journal of Ultrasound Medicine, Wang et al., called the Early Screening for Aortic Dissection with Point-of-Care Ultrasound by Emergency Physicians, a prospective pilot study. The study's aim was to determine the sensitivity and specificity for emergency departments, point-of-care ultrasounds, compared to CT angiogram in the evaluation of thoraco and abdominal aortic dissection. And the inclusion criteria were adults attending to the ED with high-risk clinical features of aortic dissection or whether the clinician has a high clinical suspicion, and they laid those out specifically in the paper. They excluded anyone coming with traumatic chest pain, uh, anyone in cardiac arrest on arrival, or anyone who was refusing focus. And the study design was a prospective cohort study with convenience sampling. So not all the emergency residents were trained in ultrasound. So they were the patients were allocated to the ultrasound or the control arm, depending on the availability of staff. And the training-wise, which is always important to note with ultrasound studies, how much experience had the operators had, because it's uh, the sensitivity and specificity of any modality is hugely dependent on the operator with ultrasound. It only had one week's voluntary training, and it wasn't specific to dissection. It was covering many ultrasound modalities. And notably, the POCUS operator was independent of the treating clinician. So they were two different team members, and they were blinded to each other's findings. They got the same views you've discussed. So parasternal, the subxiphoid, apical, and then suprasternal as well. And the diagnosis of aortic dissection was made by visualizing the, the dissecting flap. And we've already discussed the, the findings of that. In terms of the setting, it was a large tertiary ED in China with 200,000 attendances per year and 50 residents in EM. So much bigger department than um, any we have in Ireland. And that probably explains the, the number of patients they managed to enroll, which was 127 with 55 in the control group and 72 in the ultrasound. And of those, 44 of the ultrasound group were diagnosed with aortic dissection. So that gives a disease prevalence of 60% in the study, which is very high. Um, and it shows that uh, really only patients with a high pretest probability were included in the study. And that has some impacts in terms of the statistical analysis we, we can maybe talk about later. 
So do you want to talk through the, the results? So as you said, they were divided into a focus group and a control group. So the focus group, um, like you described, all had ultrasound prior to their CTA authors. Now, the major findings is that so 61% of patients were diagnosed with neurotic dissection. The sensitivity was 86% and the specificity was about 100%. The positive predictive value was about 100 and the negative predictive value was about 82%. Now, they further subclassified this into type A and type B dissections. And in type A dissections, which you know is from the aortic roots or to the aortic arch, they found that the type A dissections had a higher sensitivity and specificity as well compared to the type B, which was 81%. So this was, this, that was the primary outcomes that they were looking at. Now, in terms of uh, the secondary outcomes, they looked at things like door to ultrasound time for the ultrasound group and time to the length of time of the ultrasound examination. So door to ultrasound time uh, was about nine minutes and the length of the ultrasound examination in itself going through the systematic approach was only five minutes. So quite short. Now, they also looked at other things like door to diagnosis, door to, to CT, and they also looked at door to targeted treatment time. So for the ultrasound group, the door to diagnosis time was 10 minutes compared to 79 minutes in the control group. And But there was no difference in the door to CT time and no difference in the door to targeted treatment time. So door to CT time was around 60, 60 minutes in both groups, roughly around 60 plus minutes. And the door to treatment time was in and around on, on, on a median was around kind of 50 to around 50 minutes. So, but there was no significant difference in terms of the, again, door to CT time and door to treatment time. Super. So some really interesting findings there, notably a very high well, 100% specificity, which reflects a lot of ultrasound modalities. If you see pathology, it's usually right. It's usually there. It's a very specific test. The sensitivity is almost always lower, but here we're getting a sensitivity of kind of 86%, which is, is very high. So it can't be used as a rule out test, as we've said, but it's pretty good at ruling in aortic dissection, both type A and type B. And then the interesting things with this study is particularly, they're looking at the timings and how this ultrasound, use of the ultrasound affected patient care and patient-centered outcomes. So we've got a significant reduction in daughter diagnosis time, 10 minutes with the ultrasound group and 80, 79 minutes with the non-ultrasound group, but that didn't lead to any reductions in door to treatment time or door to CT time. So we'll discuss that in the discussion, but um, really interesting findings. Uh, and notably, they also had no difference in, in hospital mortality or three-month mortality. So they concluded that compared to CT angiogram, which is the gold standard ED focus in patients with aortic dissection, was highly specific and, and relatively sensitive, and it shortened the time uh, to diagnosis of aortic dissection. So that's a really useful study, and it's really interesting to know that. Is the study uh, reliable? I think so. Uh, it's a well-conducted study. It's a difficult topic to study because of the low prevalence of disease. Think in your department how many confirmed aortic dissections have come through that you've heard about in the last year, maybe one or two, certainly not enough to be enrolling in a, in a study. You know, It was convenient sampling, which has some drawbacks, but it makes sense in this setting. Only patients with a high pretest probability were enrolled, and that obviously will affect the positive predictive value and the negative predictive value. And potentially, there's the possibility of bias, like the Hawthorne effect, where the ultrasound user was different to the clinician. So their sole role was doing the ultrasound. They're going to do it incredibly thoroughly. Um, they're going to, it's, it's not going to impact interact with patient care because they're not thinking about anything else. So that might not be quite the same situation as a single doctor looking after the patient doing all of the 
clinical care and the ultrasound. But having said that, they found really impressive diagnostic accuracy, and it's actually similar to previously reported literature. So there was a retrospective study by Nazir and et al., which found a sensitivity of 88% and specificity of 96%. So, you know, how is it didn't have any change in patient ended up outcomes, but I think in an Irish setting, it's quite different. So if you look at their door to CT time, the average for both groups was around an hour. That's a very impressive, very impressive number. And I would, I would imagine that we'd be struggling to do that for all of our CT angios in Ireland, especially out of hours and overnight, where it can be quite challenging to get urgent scans. So the making the diagnosis earlier within 10 minutes compared to 80 minutes, that's potentially very useful in an Irish setting where you can expedite the care and expedite the gold standard treatment, which is the, the gold standard investigation, which is the CT angio. What do you think about that, Tim's? No, completely, completely agree. Like you said, the study is an amazing study, but it has its limitations. But when you try to think about it in an Irish setting, like you said, it is more to expedite. When you see, when you, you know, you have that patient with a high pre-chest probability, you do your systematic scan, um, point of care ultrasound on them, and you now find what, you know, what you confirm is a dissection flap. Automatically, alarm bells are being rung. Um, you know, you if, if it's if it's two a.m., you know, you're calling your radiographer because that patient needs a CT and CT aorta. So I think, like you said, this would help expedite the diagnosis being made with a CT aorta. It didn't change the time to targeted treatment, and that's because there's a lot of factors that play, you know, for the patient to go to theater if they do need theater, and that's particularly for type A dissections where it was actually more sensitive. So. Because they have to get theater ready, the surgeons have to come on board. So those are other things that have to play. And that's why I think it didn't change the time to targeted treatment. But what it does is that it helps in that setting, like you described, 2 a.m. in the morning, high process possibility. You put your put your probe on, you find it, you see your confirmatory findings, you know, and you're calling the uh, cardiothoracic surgeons and calling your radiologists to get a scan as quickly as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, I think, uh, useful in the investigation of anyone with undifferentiated hypotension or shock. And that's reflected by the fact that it's in the FUSIC HD module. So there's focus intensive care ultrasound. They've got a whole hemodynamics module. And one of their specific questions is, is the aorta normal? And they talk through looking at the thoracic and abdominal aorta for dissection and for complications of dissection like tamponade. So really useful test in the recess room. Hopefully can expedite patient's care if you make a diagnosis. It only takes five minutes as the study shows. If you don't make the diagnosis, you don't rule it in, you're no worse off. You still have to consider aortic dissection. You still have to get the gold standards aortic angiogram if you think that's the diagnosis. But it's just about expediting care and identifying complications that you can treat. Yeah. And Colin, like... I think you you're, you do a lot of global health work. Like, how do you see this, the impact of POCUS? Like, after reading this paper, how, what, do you, what do you feel about the impact of POCUS in, in, the, in, the, in the low resource setting? Well, I, yeah, so it's, you've got no gold standard there. You've got no CT angiogram. So I saw two when I was working in Liberia, and both diagnosed with ultrasounds. And one of them went on to fly. He had a type A aortic dissection. Um, he didn't have enough health insurance to get a medevac. So he got a commercial flight to Ghana with oral blood pressure and pain relief. And he got picked up by a retrieval team on arrival and had a open chythoracic surgery. I think he was the first person to be managed in Liberia successfully with a dissection. Um, so without the ultrasound there, that diagnosis would have been missed and he would have likely died. So super useful in that setting um, where you don't have the CT angiogram and yeah, can be a lifesaver. 
Yeah, yeah, I totally, totally agree. And I think a lot of the times we we so focus on the obviously in Ireland we have to think about our setting, but in the global perspective, when you're trying to apply this kind of study as well, you find that that in low resource settings, this is where it has probably one of the most has the most value. Yeah, to have a free test that's that's got 100% specificity and a sensitivity in in the kind of 80s and 90s is is fantastic. Yeah, perfect. Thanks so much, Tim. Thanks, thanks a million. Next up, we have a discussion with a trustee of the Aortic Dissection Charitable Trust, Catherine Fowler. Catherine is a relentless campaigner to improve diagnosis for aortic dissection following the loss of her father to an undiagnosed aortic dissection in 2015. She has appeared on national radio, television and at medical conferences throughout the UK, Ireland and Europe. She's co-creator and former lead of a highly successful national campaign in the UK, which has been catalyst for change in first responder and emergency medicine. We're honoured to have her on TCOR to share her story and passion. So joining us today on the Report, we have Catherine Fowler, who's a trustee of the Aortic Dissection Charitable Trust. Thank you so much for joining us, Catherine. Thanks, Orla. It's great to be here and great to be part of this great podcast series that you're, you guys are developing. Thanks for having me on. So why don't we get started with how you became involved in the trust? Yeah, sure. So I suppose my interest in aortic dissection came about seven years ago now. So my dad Tim Fleming, he sadly died of a misdiagnosed aortic dissection. He was on a short trip over to Dublin. And really, I suppose that experience really heightened my awareness of the condition and that as a family, really, that we were not alone in the number of patients that lose their life to this condition through um, misdiagnosis. It's about half of the patients um, who experience an aortic dissection are misdiagnosed and around a third of patients are actively treated um, for the wrong conditions. So I think really it was a tragic event that kind of heightened my interest and equally my aunt, so my, my father's sister, she suffered an aortic dissection seven days after my dad. And I think it was really the combination of both of those experiences that really proved to our family that there can be very, very different outcomes uh, for people who experience this condition. So my aunt um, and the team who looked after her, they suspected uh, very early on that she was having a dissection. They ran a CT scan, they picked it up which meant she was able to be transferred to a hospital where they were able to perform the specialist surgery that saved her life. And really, it was the combination of a very sudden and tragic loss, um, but equally the awareness in such a short space of time within our family, knowing that patients can survive and patients can indeed have very different outcomes and uh, yeah, over the years have really just actively become involved in 
campaigning for change. So my sister and I, we started a petition very shortly after my dad died, looking really for consistency and improvements across the patient treatment pathway from diagnosis to equality of access into treatment and aftercare and access to genetic screening, which really can turn the table on this type of condition as well for those individuals who have conditions, genetic conditions that will predispose them from aortic dissection. Um, to be on the front foot of this disease, I think, can be life-changing. It's the difference between life and death. I think when you know that you have a condition and you're proactively managed and cared for and any surgical intervention is planned, the outcomes for those patients are significantly different. And equally, there's a job to be done in the acute setting for patients and people who are struck by this condition from an emergency point of view, that there's improved education around the condition and clearer pathways for diagnosis and treatment. So it's something I've been hugely passionate about over the last seven years. And really, it was at the start of the pandemic that myself, Mr. Graham Cooper, who's a surgeon in Sheffield and past president of SCTS, and Pauline Latham, the third trustee, she is a member of uh, parliament. But her interest in this condition is because she lost her son, Ben, who was 44 to a misdiagnosis of this condition. And, you know, we thought it was time that a charity formed. So a charity doesn't exist in the UK or Ireland for this condition. Number one, to make a difference and to drive change forward. So our charity focuses on three key pillars for education, research and policy change. I always think of it as, a, you know, it's a bit of a, a, a dad's army approach. I don't think that there's one silver bullet for um, solving this problem. But certainly, you know, there's so much that we can do in education in the short term in the here and now to increase education, clearly policy change and improving process and guidelines. And ultimately, you know, looking to the future, research can really have such a significant um, impact on this disease. If we ever get to the, the place or when we get to the place where there's a biomarker, I think it will really present significant opportunity around um, improving diagnosis um, for this condition. But there's lots to be done in the space of research. Um, so we're trying to work, I suppose, across all of the different horizons in the here and now and certainly looking to the future. So we were delighted to launch the, the charity last March. And really, I think, reassured that there is a genuine need for a charity for this condition. There's been a huge pull from the medical community to access our learning resources, to collaborate and come and work with us. And that's just a fantastic feeling because clearly when you're trying to drive change, you know, sometimes that can feel you're pushing on a on a closed door and that is absolutely not the case. I think it's pushing on an open door. Everyone's looking to make improvement in this area and we're delighted to be here from a charity's perspective and equally just being a charity within it within its own right, I think just raises the profile for the condition and equally, you know, it's somewhere for families like mine to go. It was probably the first thing that I really looked for when my dad died, you know, you're searching for something to do. How can you prevent this from happening to others? So we we did set about doing um, a lot of fundraising and a lot of charity events for um, Heart Research UK, a charity based in the UK, because we couldn't find a charity for aortic dissection. So it was something that was very personal to me that I was seeking out to find. And we're here now for other patients and families that are looking to raise funds, but equally to come become part of our 
charity community to get involved in the education, to share their personal experience and stories and, and equally to get involved in the um, research side of the activity that we do. So yeah, my involvement in the trust came about from very personal reasons and from a passion I don't think that will ever, ever leave me really. You know, when I learned more about it and understood that there was so much that we could do in the here and now. Clearly, innovation and change plays its part. But when I realized that there's a huge role for education, it inspired me very, very early on to become very, very active in this space and really try and prevent this from happening to other families and to make a difference and to make a personal loss become meaningful, that there was meaning to that tragic event and that there can be some real learning from it. So yeah, that's a a little bit about my interest, how we came about and how the team was formed. We also have a patient ambassador, so a lovely gentleman called Bob Harris. So he is a BBC radio broadcaster, very into the country scene, if anyone is interested. But he is the ambassador, the patient ambassador for the charity. And uh, he suffered an aortic dissection a couple of years ago now. And he has such a positive outlook on life. And I think it's, uh, I haven't experienced an aortic dissection myself or what it's like to live with an aortic disease, but it's quite a scary thing I can empathize with. And he's a very inspiring man who's really kind of championing patients not to live in fear of the condition. And, um, you know, we have plans afoot around how we can provide support for patients who are living with this condition too. So we're delighted to have Bob as a key part of the team too. Great. Well, listen, thank you so much for sharing that. Obviously, incredibly sad, but so such an inspirational story with us. And I think there's just a few things that I think we should pick up on because it was just remarkable what you mentioned. You mentioned that you're keen to have consistency and, and equality when it comes to treating patients. And that's something that emergency medicine you know, consists of, or medicine in, in, in general, but certainly things that in emergency medicine were always so so keen to to try and get right as much as possible that patients are treated with standardized care that's evidence based and that and that every patient gets the same no matter what emergency department you you attend and you know no matter what hospital that you attend that from an emergency medicine point of view and what you attend with that you are treated with consistency and we all want patients to be treated with equality and the way that you put it was just fantastic and you've probably touched on this a bit in, in what you've already said, but what do you think that, you know, patient advocates and patient experience champions can have on clinical guidelines and, and how important are they in, in planning for patient care and planning policy? Yeah, I think the role of patients and relatives can be hugely impactful if the collaboration, I suppose, is, is, is brought around in the right way. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really interesting point because, you know, I was very keen to get involved in driving change very early after my dad passed away. And, you know, that relation, and, and especially directly with the hospital that was involved in my father's care. And that dynamic can be quite difficult, I think, for for both parties, you know, for the relative and equally for the team that were directly involved and the leadership team of that, the hospital as well, you know, and it was not, sometimes I felt that it might have been misunderstood, you know, that it was a, a threat, that it was, you know, that I was looking for failures or someone to blame. And of course, you know, in the, in the early days, 
and sometimes still, you know, really angry and upset, uh, clearly a- about personal loss. But, you know, I've spent time with the leadership team at the hospital, with members of the team who are involved in my father's care. And no one gets into medicine to, to make mistakes, you know, or to, you know, do something destructive. It's all about saving lives. It's clearly a business when things go wrong, though, there can be catastrophic events. And for this condition, there aren't, you know, national guidelines, there aren't nice guidelines. And in some hospitals, there aren't guidelines for it at all. So I think having a policy and a guideline is is hugely important, but it only has value if it's really used as well. So not just a policy that's sitting on the dusty shelf or in a, in a drive on the computer. I think it's how you make it active and, and that they become working practice and that there's uh, quality um, measures around those practices as well. So I think it's making sure that, you know, that they exist, that they're used and that they're measured against. And that when failure happens, I think that it makes, I suppose, those points of learning very real. And I think that there is just a huge amount of energy from patients and relatives to want to be involved and to get things right. And when you think about the huge amount of resource pressure that there is on the health system, I think using and working with patients and families and harnessing that energy and resource can be a hugely powerful thing. I think collaboration always brings around brings about the best results. Um, and I think when everyone's working towards the same goal, you just get a better result. You can have you know different perspectives, and I just think it's a hugely positive practice. And I know it's very very welcomed um, and and actively sought out. I mean, we have a research panel as part of the charity. So I talked a little bit about the the three kind of pillars that the charity focus on. Research is one of those, and we actively recruited a. And we're always actively recruiting. The doors are always open for people to become part of that research panel. All you need to have is an interest in aortic dissection. So whether you're a patient, a relative or part of the medical community, um, you can get involved in the charity's work. And we have been, we're regularly contacted or more regularly contacted now by groups who are looking at research and wanting to have that PPI involvement. So it's something that's very, very proactively looked for as part of research development, having that patient perspective and engagement is hugely important and I think drives a better outcome and a result. Brilliant. Okay. And so on that, the three pillars or the dad's army, three fronts that you're fighting, tell us a little bit about the research that ADCT are doing at the moment. The charity, when it was thinking about the research activity that we wanted to undertake, it was really important for us that patients would have a view and that they would also be involved. So I talked a little bit about our uh, research panel, which we are always inviting patients and the wider community to get involved in. Myself and Graham and Pauline don't come from a research background. So we thought it would be a really good idea to set up a research advisory group. So the chair of that group is Mr. Colin Bicknell, and he's a vascular surgeon at Imperial in London, um, Professor Ong U from Barts, Professor Mark Field from Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital, and Professor Julie Saunders from Barts also. So they make up our research advisory group and really act as the advisors 
to the charity on, I suppose, our mission when it comes to research. And we engage with our panel group to equally set the priorities for our research activity as well. It's probably, I suppose, still in its infancy. So we have the uh, research advisory group together back end of last year. So it's still, you know, in its infancy and and finding its feet, but we have great ambition and there's already a number of research activities that are underway. At the end of January, so should be actually released uh, when the podcast um, goes out. We're about to launch our first research grant. So we'll be welcoming applications for those who have got an interest in aortic dissection research. We'll be welcoming applications and we'll be looking to announce that award on uh, September the 19th, which is Aortic Dissection Awareness Day. So quite a pointed one and we're, we're delighted to be in a position to start awarding grants um, from the charity's perspective. And um, we're also already supporting a number of research proposals and they're quite uh, broad reaching. So uh, some are looking at the diagnostic challenge that we have with um, aortic dissection. So retrospective studies to really identify the current diagnostic and the management treatment pathway to understand, I suppose, the baseline where we are today. And that will really help to identify the uh, improvements um, in clinical practice. Um, so that's a really important piece, all the way to looking at studies to improve the treatment pathway for patients with type B aortic dissection. So we're currently working yeah, there too, but there's a number of other projects that we are supporting in their grant applications. But it's an area where we've got some really exciting ambition because there's a number of breakthroughs, I think, that will really change the outcomes and the prognosis for patients with this condition. So clearly in the space of biomarkers, that will absolutely be a huge breakthrough for for diagnostics in emergency medicine. So we can't wait until that breakthrough comes. Neither, neither can we. Neither can we. <laughs> <laughs> and I've no doubt it will, it will come from this charity. <laughs> if it's well, we, hope, we hope so too. But to be honest, <laughs> I would welcome wherever it comes from. You know, I think it would make a huge difference. And equally, I think the, the genetics aspect of research as well. So being proactive and, you know, patients being able to be on the front foot of this disease, knowing that they've got a predisposing genetic condition and for their health and their aortas to be proactively managed. I think that's um, equally game changer in that space. So yeah, we've got some really big ambitions and plans afoot, but yeah, the charity's activity and research, it's um, it's coming along nicely. And, and uh, yeah, we look forward to the role that we'll play in the future in that space as well. Brilliant. I've, I've no doubt that we'll all be reading papers and the considerations at the top are co-authors and it will, it will be, no doubt be mentioning the Aortic Dissection Charitable Trust. And so moving a little bit away from research then, but you've got something exciting coming in the pipeline in terms of your toolkit, if you want to tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we can't take credit for the toolkit. So this is, uh, but we're, we're definitely a key collaborator on it. So it's the toolkit is a concept that NHS England have developed and a working group was brought together. So a number of clinicians from across the treatment pathway 
and patients and relatives were also involved in this working group. And we have developed together seven key principles that really identify the best management for patients who are already on the acute treatment pathway. So once they are diagnosed, it really outlines the best practice management that should follow for those patients. So the toolkit has been out for consultation across um, all the key stakeholders, including patients as well. So it's just going through its final phases now for approval um, and sign-off. And I understand the plan from the NHS is that they will be looking to roll this out from um, April this year. And yeah, I think it's got a really, really important role to play, uh, standardizing practice and really empowering, I suppose, from a, a regional level to design that pathway for the region against the seven principles that are laid out in the toolkit. And when I, when, you know, when I was working on the, on this piece of activity, you know, it was one of the things I was really keen to understand is well, what you know, the, the, so what what impact will it have? And if this toolkit is rolled out across all the centres in England, it has got the potential to save around five hundred lives a year. So it's a really, really important piece of work. And, uh, you know, we talked about standardization and the quality of care. I think having, you know, the guidance and the principles to be able to pin your policies and your uh, processes too, I think it provides, you know, the help and the benchmarks. I suppose the benchmark can be set here. So it's, um, yeah, it's a really, really great piece of work and I can't wait for it to to be implemented. So once it's available, I'll make sure that I loop back to you, Orla, and we can make sure that the links and everything are available. And equally, if you know you were interested in doing a particular spotlight, we would be very, very happy to take you and your audience through the seven key principles and have some discussion in detail around it. It's probably a podcast in itself, but we'd be very happy to do that when the time is right. Brilliant. We'll, uh, we'll lock you in for that uh, <laughs> off, <laughs> off recording as soon as we hang up from this call. <laughs> um, we never say no to an offer like that. Brilliant. Ex- very exciting. So we'll make sure that the show notes are updated when it's released. And then going to our other third front in terms of education as well. I believe you're linking in with our colleagues in Orchem for something coming up. We are. Yeah, absolutely. Education is hugely, hugely important to the charity. Um, I'd encourage uh, your listeners to take a look at the website, which is uh, tadct.org. So you'll see uh, listed all of our educational events and equally um, some historic resources that are available. Um, But we're delighted this year to be working with Archem to put together a study day to focus specifically and exclusively on aortic dissection. So we had to pitch to secure the day. So Arkem run 12 study days across uh, the year, so one a month. And we are delighted this year that there will be a day dedicated to learning across the Arkem community. So registration for the event opens on the 15th of February, and we'll be looking to have the day itself on the 7th of June, and it will be in, in London. So a, a physical event. We will be looking to see if there's a way that we can record all of the materials as well, because we've certainly learnt the silver lining, I suppose, of the pandemic, if there is one, is I suppose the reach um, that education can have when it's run virtually. So if we can capture uh, those materials and share them on the website, that's something we'll be looking to do. 
But the day itself, it will focus on a couple of key kind of components. So looking at the pathophysiology of acute aortic dissection and how this affects the presentation of the condition and the variation of its presentation as well. We'll be taking time to look at the approaches to diagnosing aortic dissection, looking specifically at the human factors, biomarkers, and the role for the future that AI can have as well. So it should be a really exciting session. And then looking at managing aortic dissection after its diagnosis. So the important role of managing the patients in the emergency department and also the transfer of the patient as well. So where we don't have services um, on site to, to operate on the patient the transfer is, is hugely, hugely important. And then we'll be taking a look at the, the treatment pathway itself. So giving a, a, an overview of the definitive treatment guide to aortic dissection, that will be part of, of the day. And we'll also have some patients and relatives sharing their experiences of aortic dissection, you know, where it's gone incredibly well and equally where it's gone tragically wrong. But yeah, it's really important, I think, for the community and patients and relatives to engage um, in the day. Great for patients to see the effort that goes into learning um, and education as well. So um, it should be a great day and we're delighted to be running that day in partnership with Arkem. Fantastic. Everything you need to know about aortic dissection. And obviously here at TCR, we are big proponents of FOMED. So we will definitely be encouraging and linking our listeners to your website and all the free online access medical education that's available there and fingers crossed some of the some of the information that's that's discussed on that study day will be available for people who can't make it from Ireland. Fantastic. So I'd say let's just to wrap up I'm going to put you slightly on the spot just for a minute. What would be say the top 3 take home points or things that you want emergency department clinicians and indeed nursing staff paramedics to think about or to be aware about when dealing with a patient that could possibly uh, be presenting with an aortic dissection? So I think it's just really important to have a heightened suspicion to this condition. It's really interesting when I speak to physicians from the emergency community, once they have experienced a patient who's having an aortic dissection, regardless of the outcome whether it's been a positive diagnosis or a misdiagnosis, it's really something that they, they never forget. And their suspicion is really, really heightened. So I think having that heightened suspicion and learning ahead is something that's really helpful. I think it's really important to know that some of the, the classic tests, I suppose, they can all look very normal when a patient is having an aortic dissection. So if you're looking to rule it out, really, it's a CT scan. That's what's that's needed. So I think that's a really important thing to remember. And also, I suppose that aortic dissection is a very treatable condition. So it has a survival rate of 80%. We can often think aortic dissection, you know, it's a, it's a fatal condition. It's a fatal condition if it's not picked up and treated. If it is, people can have fantastic outcomes. So I think, you know, keeping that in mind that it is a hugely a tr a treatable condition, but time matters. I think that's the other, the takeout. It's a time critical condition with a mortality rate of uh, one to 2% an hour. So time really matters. So if you're suspecting an aortic dissection. The diagnostic tool of choice has got to be CT. I'm sure there's wider debates around access or barriers. So, you know, maybe we can spend some time talking about 
how we can break through that barrier and that patients can have really good outcomes. So they would be my takeouts. And equally, for those who have an interest and want to get involved, you know, come to the website, use our, our materials, use us. So we're delighted to work with hospitals um, and get involved in their education days locally, virtually. And if you want to be part of the research community, um, our doors are really, really open. So yeah, I'd invite everyone to, to get involved. You can follow us on Twitter at Aortic Dissect CT. Yeah, look forward to, to working with you all and staying connected. Listen, I'm, I'm sure your, your website hits and Twitter hits are about to take a jump. Well, that, that might be saying more about our listenership. But I'm not sure. We're not trying to brag about that. But those take-home points should definitely, I would imagine, are going to be the same take-home points from the Orchem study day. And they're everything that um, that emergency medicine physicians and allied staff in the departments need to be need to be aware of. And I think if you don't think about it, you're not going to look for it. So listen, Catherine from the Aortic Dissection Charitable Trust, thank you so much for speaking to us. You're a beacon and an inspiration, really. And in terms of having patient advocacy, advocates um, at the forefront of medical education and research. I couldn't think of somebody better to be speaking to us today. It was a real, real pleasure. And thank you so, so much for sharing your your story and your expertise and, and brilliance with us. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Ola. Thanks so much for um, inviting me on. And yeah, look forward to staying connected. I hope you all enjoyed that interview with Catherine Fowler from the Aortic Dissection Charitable Trust. Coming up on their calendar is Global Aortic Dissection Awareness Week, which starts 18th of September 22. The Trust are working in collaboration with RCSI and IEM, planning a National Education Day dedicated to aortic dissection education across the treatment pathway targeted at the medical community in Ireland. This is going to include GPs, emergency medicine, radiology and surgeons, etc. They will also be hosting an AD Patient Day to increase education about the condition for patients and their relatives, so they have a deeper understanding of the condition itself and what they should expect with regards to aftercare here in Ireland. Full details about the events will be available on their website, aorticdissectioncharitabletrust.org. So that's all for this month from the Case.Report. We hope you've enjoyed and have learned some pearls to take into your practice. If you have, as my nieces and nephew would say, smash that subscribe button and sure, give us a like or review while you're at it. We're available on all good podcast purveyors, including Spotify and Apple. So that's all from us this month. In the meantime, may your coffee be strong and your rounds be grand. TCR out.